Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the Bible. Thank you that the Bible is you speaking. And we find ourselves, although toward the back of the Bible, truly we find ourselves in the center of the Bible this morning. I can't think of a of more of a bullseye text, a boil-down text than this one. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 5. This is the Super Bowl of the Bible. So please come now and help us to be amazed and to stand and cheer and not to be bored. And then help us, Lord, to take what we've preached and what we teach and move into the other 167 hours of this week and may we counsel, counsel Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen. Four weeks ago, we began this current preaching series. Uh, The series is entitled Competent to Counsel a biblical vision for soul care in the local church. And since the start of this new year, we've been seeking to realize and establish and grow in our convictions as it relates to this thing called counseling or soul care. Now, it may be that this topic excites you and needs no further explanation, uh, but for some of you, You hear the phrase soul care, or the word counseling, and you freeze up. You seize up. And this whole idea is unsettling for you. And I sympathize because if you're imagining like an hour on the clock, you laying horizontal on the couch, talking to an old man from Austria about your mother, I'm not interested either. But make no mistake, I am interested in biblical counseling. Terribly interested in biblical counseling. Counselor and author David Paulison was once asked if biblical counseling was for every believer. That's a good question. And he has a good answer. He says, all counseling means is having wise, candid, fruitful conversations about things that really matter. That is biblical counseling. That is the charge of being a Christian. We all need it, and we all need to do it. The alternative is to have foolish, evasive, barren conversations. Amen? Wow. Four weeks ago... We began with the sufficiency of Scripture for the care of the soul. Three weeks ago, we took our next step as we pondered the insufficiency of worldly wisdom for the care of the same soul. Those first two Sundays work together. They are, as I use the phrase a lot in this church, but two sides of the same coin. If one is true, the other is true. If the Scriptures of God's Word are sufficient, then the words of God's world are insufficient for this thing called counseling. 
One way to say it is that God's world lets us observe the condition of our souls, but only God's word offers us the cure of our souls. To be more specific, not to mention controversial, we could say it this way. Beware the poverty of the secular psychologies. Beware the poverty of the secular psychologies and believe in the richness of Christ-centered soul care. Brothers and sisters of Mound Free Church, our lives are a vapor. We are, as James says, a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. I have very little interest in squandering the precious gift of the pulpit on trivial matters. Now, just because our topic isn't trivial doesn't mean it's not slightly controversial. That is a controversial claim. I understand that. But is it right? I'd bet my hands on it. We must come to see the emptiness of the world's wisdom as well as the fullness of the wisdom of Christ. Now, I'm going to give us today's big idea, and as I do so, you'll discern how serious I am, because I could do without my hands. But what about preaching? I believe in preaching. I believe in biblical preaching. I believe in biblical expositional preaching. I love preaching preaching Jesus. I love preaching. Him we proclaim. Amen? Notwithstanding, let us never settle for merely preaching Jesus Christ. We must press on to counsel him. Let us never settle for merely preaching Jesus Christ. We must press on to counsel him. A handful of weeks ago, I quoted one of my favorite books that's emerged from within the biblical counseling movement. It would be worth every penny you'd pay for it. Counsel from the Cross. It's by Elise Fitzpatrick and Dennis Johnson. Counsel from the Cross. And I've quoted this, but I'll re-quote it. Uh, They ponder this. Is the gospel really a panacea? A cure-all? Or is it just one more medicine show product hyped by claims that no elixir could ever fulfill? I love love people who use words like that. It's a great book. They define panacea as cure-all, a cure-all. Merriam-Webster comes really close to doing that too. Their online dictionary definition of panacea is something that will make everything about a situation better. Something that will make everything about a situation better. Are you suffering right now? Maybe you're depressed. Maybe you're worried or anxious or fearful about someone or something in your life that you have to face. Are you enslaved to alcohol, to drugs, to prescription medications, to food, to pornography? Are you bitter about something, 
sinfully angry about a situation that you find yourself in, and you can feel your heart hardening, is your marriage in trouble? Or are you navigating a rocky season with some significant other? Are your kids struggling? Are you hitting the wall as a parent? Please listen to me this morning. Jesus is the panacea of soul care. A panacea. Something that will make everything about a situation better. Now, by better do we mean the absence of suffering? Not today. By better then we mean perhaps the absence of sinning. Sadly, not today. Neither one in this lifetime. But this is the ultimate promise of the gospel. According to Revelation 21, one day, no suffering. Revelation 21, 4. No tears, no death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. One day. And not only no suffering, but the gospel promises one day, no sinning. Revelation 21.8 says, in the new heavens and new earth, nothing unclean will ever enter it. No suffering, no sinning, one day. And just who's the recipient of this gospel? Revelation 21.6 and 7 says, the thirsty. The thirsty. Are you thirsty this morning? You can have it. Without payment, Revelation 21, 6 and 7 says, without payment. How? Because Jesus paid it all. The gospel is the comprehensive rescue for your soul, something that will make everything about your situation better. First point today. Jesus is the panacea of soul care because of what the gospel manages to accomplish. Jesus is the panacea of soul care because of what the gospel manages to accomplish. Jerry Bridges once wrote, The gospel is not only the most important message in all of history, it is the only essential message in all of history. Yet we allow thousands of professing Christians to live their entire lives without clearly understanding it and experiencing the joy of living by it. Close quote. I agree. Add to that statement by Jerry Bridges, this one from the late John Stott who observed many years ago that, quote, all around us we see Christians and churches relaxing their grasp on the gospel, fumbling it, and in danger of letting it drop from their grip altogether. Sadly, Mr. Stott is not wrong. The gospel is constantly at risk in the church And not always because we fail to understand it, although that is common enough. No, the gospel is perpetually at risk in the church because of the church's dismal failure to apply it. Not just to preach it, not just to teach it, but to apply it, to live it, to counsel it. But take heart, 
Because this has been the problem from the very beginning, from the very beginning of the gospel. Listen now with fresh ears. May God the Holy Spirit give us ears to hear 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Notice that in verse 1, the Apostle Paul says something really strange. I mean, even for Paul, this is strange. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 begins, Now I would remind, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Paul is 14 full chapters in, deep, to his letter of the church in Corinth. He has been explaining the content and the intent of the gospel message for pages and pages and pages. Now he's going to remind them of the gospel? It's always struck me as odd. Like, really? Something doesn't add up here. Well, I did some hunting this week. Not like up north. I mean hunting in the Greek New Testament. The kind of hunting that nerds do, okay? And I learned something. This word that Paul uses, translated remind, in the Greek is gnoritso. You say, why should I care? Ordinarily, you shouldn't care. But this word that Paul uses, translated remind in verse 1, it's not the Greek word for remind. This word occurs 26 times in the New Testament. I verified every last one of them. And never, not one other time is this word translated remind. Not once. Generically, the word means to make known. And yet the way that Paul typically uses the word is in the sense of further explore. Increasingly uncover. More fully expound. To better understand. In fact, several times... Paul uses this word to mean tell you everything. In other words, remind you of the gospel isn't really what Paul said. He said something more like further acquaint you with the gospel. To bring you a chock full and practical knowledge and unpacking of the gospel. Okay, that comes dangerously close to what we would call counseling. Try this translation on for size. Now, I would counsel you, brothers, of the same gospel I preached to you. You smell what he's cooking? See, Paul's in the home stretch here. He has preached the gospel to them. Now he's going to counsel the gospel to them, the very same gospel he's been preaching to them. This particular sermon point is that Jesus is the panacea of soul care because of what the gospel manages to accomplish. What exactly does the gospel manage to accomplish? I mean, seriously, what can the gospel do? Paul says, I'm glad you asked. Observe that verses 1 and 2 employ no less than four active verbs to describe what can be done with this gospel. 1 Corinthians 15 
says the gospel can be preached, verse 1. The gospel can be received, verse 1. In the gospel, we can take our stand, verse 1. By the gospel, we are being saved, verse 2. Now, that last one, let's talk about that last one. We are being saved by the gospel. If you're a Christian, you are being saved. This is a present reality. It's an ongoing phenomenon. You're being saved. Now, it's also true if you're a Christian that you got saved at one particular point in time, whether you know the date of it or not. It's also true if you are a Christian that you will be saved in the final day. The Bible is an equal opportunity, tense, saver. Got saved, are being saved, will be saved. And it's all courtesy of this thing called the gospel. What does it mean to be saved, like past, present, or future tense? I'm amazed that there are whole sections of the Church of Jesus Christ that don't talk this way, like the two that I grew up in until I was 18 years old. Never heard the word. And never mentioned, uh, missed a day of church either until I was 18. Saved. Saved from what? I mean, like, that's really dramatic. Like, I need to be saved? Do I need saving? Answer, yes. Yes, you do. We need to be saved from the wrath of God. We need to be saved from the penalty of sin. We need to be saved from the fires of everlasting hell. It might be of assistance to define this word saved with the phrase that we use in the subtitle of the sermon. By saved, we mean comprehensive rescue. Comprehensive rescue. The gospel is a comprehensive rescue. And I mean, by comprehensive, a solution for your soul that is complete and full and wide-ranging and ample and just across the board. Comprehensive. And by rescue, I mean to indicate that the gospel is release, it's deliverance, it's liberation, it's emancipation. And if you're with us today and you have come burdened or overwhelmed or exhausted or beat down or conflicted or hurt or out of resources to deal with your life, allow me to acquaint you with the gospel. The gospel this church preaches, preached long before I arrived and Lord willing will preach long after I've left. This is a gospel which you can receive this morning. This is a gospel in which you can take your stand this morning. This is a gospel by which you can be rescued comprehensively, be saved. Now, perhaps you're thinking, I did believe the gospel. I have believed the gospel. I've tried that. I'm a Christian, and nothing has changed. My life is still the same insufferable version of Groundhog Day, sun up and sun down. This is Groundhog's Day Eve. I had to say something about Groundhog's Day. I've tried the gospel. It's just the same stuff, different day. I'm saved, and I can't stand it. If that is you today, I'd like for you to finish reading with me 1 Corinthians 15, 2. The gospel is the comprehensive rescue for your soul. It's the message by which you are being saved 
if you hold fast the gospel I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Okay. If, unless. I hope you believe both those words. If, unless. Here's John Calvin's observation about the back half of verse 2, those two words. These two expressions are very cutting. This is that in 1556. If, unless. It's cutting, isn't it? It's cutting to hear that. If, unless. What does he mean? The gospel is the comprehensive rescue for your soul so long as you don't release your grip on it. John Stott's words that we heard at the front end of this sermon are eerily prophetic. John Stott wrote them in 1986 when I was listening to Kiss Records. Not interested in Jesus. 1986. All around us, we see Christians and churches relaxing their grasp on the gospel, fumbling it, how appropriate given today's game, fumbling it and in danger of letting it drop from their grip altogether. The gospel is the comprehensive rescue for your soul. You don't need anything else. It's the -the across-the-board emancipation that you've been searching for if you take hold of it and never let it go. And life will kick the tar out of you. And the temptation is to let it go. So we don't simply have to settle for preaching the gospel in this church. By all means, let's aggressively preach and herald and passionately proclaim the gospel. But let's not stop there. We don't live at the pulpit. I don't live here. I live in the world that you live in. Let's not settle for merely preaching the gospel. Let's press on to counsel Christ. Jesus is the panacea of soul care because of what the gospel manages to accomplish. Now, what exactly is this gospel? It's our second and final point this morning. Jesus is the panacea of soul care because of what the gospel message is to a counselee. That may not be a familiar word for you, but it will get familiar over these next few years. Counselee, C-O-U. N-S-E-L-E-E, counselee. Notice that this gospel, verse 1, is still the subject of verse 3. But here in verses 3 to 5, Paul isn't explaining what the gospel does as much now as what the gospel is. So follow along carefully as we read 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 5. For I delivered to you as of first importance. Now, let me make a comma, just a comment. I have to break in and make a comment. This gospel is the matter of first importance. Did you know that there is proportion to biblical doctrine? All biblical teaching is equally true. It's not what I mean. But not all biblical teaching is equally important. If it were, what Paul is saying here means nothing. If all biblical teaching were equally important, what Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew 23 would mean nothing. He said there were weightier matters of the law, which would presuppose there are lighter matters of the law. The Bible isn't flat. It's got topography. It's got contours. It's loaded with valleys and plains and hills. It's even got some mountain peaks. And 1 Corinthians 15, 3-5 is the highest 
summit in Holy Scripture. It just soars over the whole Bible. What is the... Bible is also an acronym. Did you know that? B-I-B-L-E. Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. And John 3.16 is the B-I-B-L-E. Or 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 5. It's a message of first importance. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. I would love nothing more than to take this next hour and unfold and apply each word here. I love you, so I won't do that. But 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 5, we need to know is the comprehensive message, the comprehensive rescue for our soul. We could say this much, that the content of 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 5 is the centerpiece of our mission. We want to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ. And we're going to accomplish that mission through our vision, striving to be a gospel-centered church family, celebrating, demonstrating, communicating the good news of Jesus. A vision with movement to it. We have goals, as you might have heard last week in our 2020 vision sermon. We could not be any more in the center of the scriptures or in the center of the church's mission and vision than this text. This is the matter of first importance. It's the message at the heart of all we seek to celebrate, demonstrate, and communicate. So what is this message? Why is it such good news in our quest to become a congregation competent to counsel one another as well as the West Tonka community? There are two answers to that question. In this morning's uh, blog post at our website, moundfree.org, John Owen showed up. And he called these the knot and center of the gospel, K-N-O-T. Think like a hosser, huge knot, the knot and center of the gospel. Owen says, our message, our counsel flows from the cross and springs out of the grave of Christ. I love that. thought I was going to say grace, didn't you? Grave of Christ. Our message, our counsel flows from the cross and springs out of the grave of Christ. So... Two things, two observations about this gospel, then we'll close. First, the gospel is a message of death. Why is this good news for a counselee, for a person who's struggling? Here's why. Because no matter how profound a person's strugglings, they are not nearly as profound as the problem of sinning. Our sufferings are not so great as our sins. Aren't we victims? Sure. As we like to say here in Minnesota, yeah, sure, you betcha. We're victims. However, first and foremost, far and away most importantly than anything else, we are perpetrators. Every last one of us. We have blood on our hands. We have sinned. And we know it instinctively, if not scripturally, that the wages of sin is death. We deserve an eternal death penalty for our sins because we have sinned against an infinitely glorious God. We deserve death. We've earned it. And note well, 
then, the gospel is a message of death. But here's what makes the gospel so stunning. It's not a message of our death. It's not our death. Though we have earned it royally, it's the message of Christ's death on our behalf. So here's the way Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15.3. For what I delivered to you is of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. Psalm 103, verse 10 says of our God, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. Psalm 103, 10, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. Did you know that? God does not treat you as your sins deserve. He does not treat you as your sins deserve. You may know that, but do you know why? The reason why God does not treat us as our sins deserve is that God treated his son as our sins deserve. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Is this good news to someone in need of counsel? It's spectacular news. The gospel is not a message of Christ's death. It's also a message of the death of death. In time, Christ's death will be the death of your suffering and the death of your sinning. If you hold fast to it, How does that work? It works because Jesus is not dead anymore. That's why it works. Second thing we need to note then about this gospel is that the gospel is a message of life. Verse 4 says that Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas then to the twelve. Notice just in passing here that each truth of the gospel, namely Christ's death and Christ's life, are accompanied by confirmations of each. Christ died. How can we be sure? Verse 4 says he was buried. That's dead. Verse 4 also says he was raised. Well, how can we be certain of that? That doesn't happen every day. Verse 5 tells us that he appeared. It's amazing. He appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. Cephas is the Aramaic name for Peter. He appeared to Peter and then the twelve. And not only that, but the resurrected Christ appeared to more than 500 believers at one time, this text goes on to say. Verse 6 says, most of whom are still alive. Why did he say that? Because if someone in the first century doubted the reality of the resurrection, all they needed to do was talk to an eyewitness. You couldn't put it down. And if anyone doubts the resurrection of Christ in the 21st century, guess what? All they really need to do is talk to a Christian. Really. Now, I don't mean a mere churchgoer. I don't mean someone who's nice. I don't mean someone who watches good, clean TV. I mean a person once dead brought to life. We are raised with 
Christ. Jesus is alive. We are seated in the heavenly realms with him. True Christians are so heavenly minded, they are of supreme earthly good. True Christians are saved. They're rescued and they live like it. A true Christian is a powerful, pure, pulsing specimen of Holy Spirit life. Do you think such a person might be a good resource as it relates to the personal problem sphere? Yeah. Yeah, you could do a lot worse than talk to a Christian about your problems. A true Christian. We have a Christ who is worth counseling. Jesus is the panacea of soul care because of what the gospel message is to a counselee. It's a message of death and it's a message of life. So let's close. Let us never settle for merely preaching Jesus Christ. We must press on to counsel him. Jesus is the panacea of soul care because of what the gospel manages to accomplish and what the gospel message is to a counselee. Now I would counsel you, brothers and sisters, the same gospel I preach to you. which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve and to many of us. Next week, we will learn the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is that the heart is the matter. Next week, we'll examine the role of desire in the life of the soul. And I trust we'll see you then. Right now, let's pray. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Lord Jesus, all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, all the riches, Paul says, Colossians 2.3, are hidden in you. And Lord, it's true that they're hidden from the world. The world hears the name Jesus, and it just doesn't add up. But a believer hears the name Jesus and knows that all of those treasures are hidden, not from us, but for us in Christ. So I pray, Lord, that we would see the the treasure trove of wisdom, the comprehensive rescue for all of our sufferings and sinnings. Lord Jesus, we, when we counsel you, we're not counseling a theory. No way. We're counseling a person, alive, soon to return, wonderful counselor, Make this church, your bride, a place where the wonderful counselor is known and wonderful counsel is shared. In Jesus' name, amen.